as much as I'm in the trans community and I'm in the disabled community, I'm still a trans disabled person. So disabled people don't always see me as disabled and trans people don't always see me as trans. I still kind of feel like I'm out on the fringes of these communities. So um, I connect with a couple people, you know, but I have a I, I like to say I have a lot of really great acquaintances and only a couple people that are really close friends. Um, and I, I believe a lot of that is because, um, you know, there is this thought that you can only be one thing. And if you kind of straddle the lines of intersectional communities, people don't know what to do with you if they're not also in that situation. For Rewire Radio, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless. I've mentioned the statistic before on this show, but I think it always bears repeating that the median time spent teaching American medical students how to provide culturally competent care to LGBTQ patients is about five hours throughout their entire training. And the effects of that lack of training can be compounded when the patient has intersecting identities, like today's storyteller. My name is Dominic Evans. I'm 36 years old, and I am a filmmaker and activist. I have a neuromuscular disability called spinal muscular atrophy. I walked until I was almost 16. I now require um, care for all my needs, um, my activities of daily living, like uh bathing and getting out of bed and things like that. Between being transgender and having a disability that made it impossible for Dominic to get examined at a typical gynecologist's office, his access to comprehensive reproductive health care has been lacking. He's only had a pap smear once in his life, when he was a teenager. When he was in his early 20s and came out as transgender, his mother said she wouldn't accept him, and the two haven't spoken since. But with the help of patient care assistants and his girlfriend Ashton, who he's lived with for about 15 years, he's able to live at home and stay active in his community. But getting access to the reproductive and sexual health care he needs hasn't always been easy. Here's Dominic's story. Really getting in my relationship with Ashton, um, that's when I was able to really kind of confront my gender issues. I knew that I didn't, I really didn't feel like I was a lesbian you have this image in your head of how you're supposed to look um and i could physically feel like this isn't supposed to be here and this is you know um so i was constantly reminded because i could physically feel um you know just i don't know if it's like a burning but it's just like pressure like my chest was pressure, constant pressure, and not just because it was heavy, um, just the constant like reminder of these aren't supposed to be here. You know, you're not supposed to look like this and then feeling bad about yourself because of it. Um, so so that's what dysphoria was like for me. Um, and, and constantly being self-conscious too. Are people looking at my chest? Um, constant anger at being called ma'am. Dominic was able to get top surgery and have it covered by insurance. 
well, I had double Ds and my back hurt. So that really helped my situation. That made sure that I was able to get it paid for by insurance. This was before um, the ACA and any regulations for Medicare and Medicaid that said um, transition-related surgeries would be covered. So um, I was able to get it because I'm disabled, um, my spine is affected, um, by by this problem of of carrying too much weight so it was medically necessary for me um to do it for me it was really uh it was amazing because here was this physical symbol of the gender i don't identify as um and it can't be avoided you know it took me seven years to get on hormones because I lived in a county. I didn't have a a wheelchair van at the time. And my county would only take me within my county on public transportation. And there were no doctors in my county who would prescribe hormones. So because of my disability, I was not able to transition. And then in 2010, I moved back to Dayton um, I was, we moved, we had moved up to Michigan where Ashton grew up and we lived there for eight years. And then I decided I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to finish my degree. I wanted to go to film school. And so I did, I came back down to Wright State and, um, I got a film degree. I'm the first person, um, who has the level of disability I do that needs complete and total help that uses a wheelchair um, that has graduated from the BFA program at Wright State. Once I went to Dayton, I was able to go to a doctor and I got on hormones right away. And that was amazing. That was, I'd been waiting for so long. So to get that was uh, amazing. And I started seeing changes really quickly. I was finally becoming the person I saw myself as in my mind, you know, Um, and I was better able to accept myself. Dominic had always suffered from severe menstrual bleeding that would often last all month. And when he started hormone therapy, he knew a hysterectomy was the right next step for him. The more I I was on testosterone, I I had always had bad cramping and nothing to get away. But I started getting even worse cramping um, and to where I, especially like the time of month when I, my body would have wanted me to have a period, I would be doubled over in pain, you know, Um, and, and it was debilitating pain. So I wanted to have a hysterectomy for that reason. And um, the reason I was having so much pain is because they discovered I had an enlarged uterus and nobody ever checked for that. Um, And obviously I couldn't get any pap smears or whatnot, so they wouldn't have known that. Um, I probably would have gotten my uterus out a lot sooner. So I, I was given an appointment four months later and it was relatively uneventful. I've had surgery at the hospital. I had it at before. So they knew um, my needs in terms of um, the anesthesia, for example. Um, so I got there and everything was fine. Um, and 
the procedure went fine. You know, I, I woke up fine. And, um, but I was spotting. And I was told, well, that that's normal the first couple of days. So, but I didn't feel right. And I said, you know, I don't know, maybe I should stay another day. But the doctor wanted to get me out. It was very much, we need the bed, you need to go. So I was sent home a day after. Um, so I kept spotting. And so I'd call the doctor every couple of days and I would talk to the nurse and they would say, oh, that's normal. That's normal. Um, can you come in for an appointment? And I said, well, is he going to have to physically examine me? Yes. Well, I can't get up on the table. Okay, well, you, you'll be fine. Just give it a couple more days. So this happened for maybe two, two to three weeks. I just, I started feeling really horrible, really horrible inside. Um, and I kept bleeding and it wasn't heavy, but then it kept getting heavier. And so I called the doctor and I said, I'm bleeding and it's just getting heavier and heavier and I feel horrible. And so they said, come to the hospital. So I came to the hospital and they determined that one of the blood vessels had not been sealed off. And that, and that's a risk of having the surgery, but, um, I, they probably would have known sooner had I been able to get into the doctor, had they said, come into the hospital, we need to see you, you can't be seen in the office, so you have to come here. But nobody said that. They said, you'll be okay, you'll be okay, it's normal. Um, so they took me into surgery, and they said they repaired it, and I said, you know, I, I don't feel good. I don't want to go home they sent me home the next day, during the day. I went home and I laid in bed and I was miserable. I felt horrible and I was bleeding and I kept getting heavier and heavier. It was even more heavy than when I went in. And I fell asleep and I woke up and it was like one or two o'clock in the morning and I was covered in blood. The bed was covered in blood. Ashton was covered in blood. And I started screaming I said, get up, I'm bleeding. And at first she was like, oh, it's not that bad. And then she looked up and the bed was just covered. It looked like, it looked like a horror movie, you know? Um, and and I, I, I said, call 911, call 911. So we called 911 and the paramedics came and I'm bleeding out. I'm bleeding everywhere. And they wrap me up and they're, they're so nice. They're the nicest guys ever. Um, they're, they're here in, in Ohio in Washington Township, the Washington Township Fire Department. They, they were so, so kind to me. They didn't treat me like I was a freak or, or a girl. You know, I said, I'm, I'm transgender. I had a hysterectomy. They were like, you know, Sir Dominic, you know, they were very kind to me. And so then they wheeled me into the hospital. And so they wheeled me back and the nurse decided that she wasn't going to recognize my gender identity because obviously she was finding out I didn't have the genitals that I was supposed to. Even though my ID said male, I didn't have it on me because, you know, when you're bleeding to death, you're not thinking, oh, I should take my ID back with me. But um, I kept saying, I'm a male, I'm a male, call me he, you know? And the paramedics were saying, this is Dominic, he, he's a him, you know? you're disrespecting him. And um, 
she kept saying, no, no, I, until I see your ID, you're, you're a girl, you know, um, I, I'll call you what I want until then. I was nauseous and like, I kept going in and out of consciousness, you know, and I'm having to deal with this very dysphoric event on top of that, you know, so my mind is all, I'm a male, you know, my mind is not, you're dying, it's, I got to prove that I'm who I say I am. I'm begging them to get Ashton. I said, go get her, go get my girlfriend, go get her, get my ID, get my ID so she will stop disrespecting me. And so finally when the, the fireman went out and cause, cause the staff was not going, he went out and he got her and she came back and you know, she's here and her boyfriend of years is laying on this table bleeding out. And you know, finally they got me blood and finally, you know, I started, the colors started coming back to me and, and I started to feel like I was not dying because I felt like I was literally dying. The experience traumatized Dominic. And for months, he panicked every time he left the house. I was on the bus one day and I remember calling Ashton in a panic, crying and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to start bleeding. And, you know, I, I'm afraid I'm bleeding. I'm scared, you know, and her saying, you know, do you want me to come and get, get you, you know, we'll come get you, we'll come pick you up. Um, and I was like, no, I have to go to class. I, I have to do this, but just being scared. And, and I did have her come and, and pick me up early, but, Getting back to my everyday life was very hard because I constantly was afraid that I would bleed out again and that maybe this time they wouldn't be able to help me. So I think just time and not not bleed, the longer it goes that I don't bleed, you know, the longer, the more comfortable I become. So I don't, um, I don't freak out as much about it. And I think I think time has really been the only thing that has helped me. But I don't know if I've ever really gotten resolution. Um, when I was talking to other trans people after my hysterectomy, um, a lot of them had said that they were given the option or that they were asked by their doctor if they wanted to save their eggs. And I said, wait, that's that's an option? And they said, yeah, and some of them had chosen to do it, um, you know, and and they thought they might inseminate their current partner or, um, you know, a future partner. Um, But yeah, I, I had never heard that as an option before then. Dominic is still able to live and work from home with the help of Ashton and his patient care associates. He works for the Center for Disability Rights as a media and entertainment advocate. And he's also a filmmaker and collaborates with Ashton, who's a writer. I advocate for more authentic portrayals of disability and inclusion, but especially with focus on institutional bias, which is um, basically the idea that, um, you know, we institutionalize disabled people, um, you know, because they can't do their own care, but we know that it's actually cheaper to have disabled people living in the community, but there are not that community support. So um, they don't have the option 
of living in their community. In a lot of cases, it's a catch-22 because if you need full-time care or if you need any level of care, um, you know, more than a couple hours, um, you can't live in your own place if that care is not secured. But you often can't get that care secured if you're not living in your own place. So what do you do? You get stuck in an institution, um, usually nursing homes. There are young kids that get stuck in nursing homes and can't get out because there there are not community supports. So my work um, aims to, through the media, tell the stories of people that are experiencing situations like these and in order to educate people so that we can change this. Um, Senator Chuck Schumer proposed the Disability Integration Act, which would allow disabled people to live in their communities. Uh, Hillary Clinton supported it. Donald Trump doesn't. So we most likely won't see the Disability Integration Act get passed. But, um, you know, this would do wonderful things for disabled people like me who require the level of care I need to be able to live in our communities. Um, It's cheaper to taxpayers. It's better for disabled people. It's better for their mental health um, and physical health when you're out in the community. You're healthier in in general. Um, So... um, but so that's that's where I work. And one of the projects we're working on is a film festival. And um, it's called the Free Our People Film Festival. And it, it's originally a film contest. So you have a month starting in March to make a film. And um, there are certain parameters. It has to tell a story that highlights institutional bias Um all characters that are disabled in the script have to be played by disabled actors and a disabled person has to be at least one of the primary roles such as writer or director on the film so you have a month to make the film and then we'll have the film festival in the summer so that's that's a big project we're working on at work and i really hope that it highlights this this vastly important but over overlooked issue of of institutional bias. Medicaid is currently the nation's health insurance for people who are poor or have disabilities. And Medicaid covers the home health care that Dominic needs. Even Medicaid has historically had a structural bias for institutionalized care. However, that's improved in the last two decades, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. And the Affordable Care Act has expanded options for Medicaid funding for community and home-based services even more. But all that could change with the new administration. President Donald Trump, House Speaker Paul Ryan, and Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price have all proposed converting Medicaid into block grants. And Dominic says that worries a lot of people with neuromuscular disabilities like his. Because if it were turned into block grants, total Medicaid spending would be capped, and each state would receive a set amount of money that would be distributed at the state's discretion, which means that the state could decide to cut funding for home health care, forcing patients with disabilities into nursing homes unless they have family members who could quit their jobs to take care of them. You know, if you need my level of care, I'm a full-time job, you know, um, but so Ashton would not be able to work, you know, um, if I don't have care. But if you don't have a family member, you know, who can quit, 
than your options at nursing home. I need help with things like bathing, toileting, um, getting into my wheelchair, changing my clothes, making my food. Um, I can go shopping and tell people what I need, but I need someone to get those items for me off the shelf. Um, I need to be handed my medicine. Um, Some medicine I can take on my own. I can't give myself, um, I'm asthmatic, and I can't give myself my inhaler. I need someone, so so I really need someone with me all the time because if I have an asthma attack, then I can't help myself. Without care, I'm dead. That's, That's a fact, you know. Obviously, Donald Trump deals in alternative facts, but this is an actual fact. This is, you know... It's a fact that people are going to die because that's the world we live in now. The Center for Disability Rights Free Our People Festival that Dominic was talking about is taking submissions from March 1st through March 31st. Dominic and others at the Center for Disability Rights hope that the festival will educate people about institutional bias and encourage them to support legislation like Schumer's Disability Integration Act. I'll share a link to the film festival on our website. This episode was produced by me, Jen Stanley, for Rewire Radio, with editorial oversight by Mark Folletti, our director of multimedia. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for this episode was by Doug Helsel. Thank you to all the staff at Rewire, especially Rachel Perrone, Lauren Gutierrez, and Stacey Burns, our communications and social media team. To learn more about Dominic's story and for comprehensive news, commentary, and analysis on reproductive and sexual health injustice, visit our website at rewire.news slash choiceless. Thanks for listening.